0: The Space Show podcast will be on its annual summer hiatus for six weeks. In its place, we are pleased to present our summer series, Lunar Science in the Artemis Era. Lunar Science focuses on the science to be done on and around the Moon by both robotic missions and the crewed Artemis missions. Lunar Science.
1: The uh, surface is fine and powdery. I can pick it up loosely with my toe. It does adhere in fine layers like powdered charcoal to the sole and sides of my boots. But I can see footprint of my boots and the tread in the fine sandy particles.
2: Welcome to... Luna Science! series in which we discuss the scientific investigation of the Moon and its environment in the Artemis era. One of the unsolved problems of human spaceflight outside the Earth's magnetosphere is radiation. As we shall hear in this, our 13th episode, there are two main sources of radiation. The first is cosmic rays. These are mainly protons travelling at near the speed of light. The second is the solar wind, which consists of fast-moving protons and electrons coming out of the sun. Both can damage plant and animal cells, ionizing the molecules that control cell function. Harlan Spence is the director of the Institute for Study of Earth, Oceans and Space at the University of New Hampshire. He is also principal investigator in charge of the Cosmic Ray Telescope aboard the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which has been circling the Moon since 2009.
3: So the third one is, again, a very practical one, and it comes down to what does this radiation environment that we're measuring in this um, at the Moon in terms of permission, permissible mission duration. So this was some work that... Uh, we've done in uh, concert with uh, NASA Langley to identify and inform NASA. the um, And uh, what we're able to do is use our measurements and uh, over the course of the entire mission and then uh, with the best models we have of radiation transport and understanding uh, how you convert dose uh, in a a sensor to effects in a human uh, and we can, uh, including the biology that's different between male and female astronauts behind a certain amount of shielding, we're able to, for the characteristic changes of the environment, mostly driven here by um, galactic cosmic rays, so those, that variation you see is the solar cycle, uh, at, for the lunar gateway or a lunar landed mission, Typically, if you're looking at a 30 day mission, um, that turns out to be well below this quantity called permissible uh, mission duration, which is hundreds of days. Uh, And this is not true for Mars. For Mars, if you're in a home and transfer orbit, um, that's 275 days. So uh, for current kind of situations, it becomes dicey for a round trip to be within the uh, risk limit Uh, And so maybe there are high energy orbit solutions, but I think this is another reason why moon first, figure it out, we'll work on shielding and uh, uh, other destinations later. Um, I believe that again, humans are essential for this exploration and because of that, there's always going to be risk, maybe residual risk, but maybe even primary risk in some cases from space radiation. So um, we can imagine uh, a, an array of instruments that range in capability. We could have very simple instruments that provide more or less a monitoring that, that maybe it's almost a binary measurement. Things are bad, you better get to a safe place.
2: Shamila Tak Arya is a space biology program scientist at NASA. She studies Interplanetary space radiation.
4: So I'm going to talk a little bit more about the three topics, the radiation, the partial gravity and, and the idea of the combination of the stress. So in terms of radiation, you know, what are we talking about? You know, what what can we anticipate? So um, what you see here is this image and this blue marble here is us on Earth um, and Earth's surface. And we are lucky in that we're protected by this magnetic field, so to speak, uh, a magnetic shell around us that deflects a a large amount of the um, charged heavily ionizing particles that are part of the deep space radiation environment. So we're protected on the earth's surface from a lot of that. However, as we go beyond this and we go towards the moon, um, and Mars and, and so on, we then breach this protective sphere um, and we are exposed to this environment. Um, and what does this environment consist of? You have the galactic cosmic radiation. Uh, this, these are um heavy ions, they're charged particles like um iron, carbon, silicon, oxygen, etc., that can be very damaging to biology. Have a lot of energy and they can really, really um, damage biology uh, when they go through the tissue. Solar particle events, so these are related to the sun's activities, and you can have things called, for example, coronal mass ejections, which release large amounts of protons, which again can be very harmful for biology. These protons can be more easily shielded against compared to the galactic cosmic radiation particles. But the problem is that the solar particle events and the coronal mass ejections are hard to predict. We haven't yet figured out um, how exactly to anticipate when they're going to happen. And so, uh, you know, if, if we were to know when they were going to happen, you know, we would bring astronauts and people back into shelter uh, in the habitat. The galactic cosmic radiation, on the other hand, is more predictable. It's continuously there. Uh, but it's very hard to shield against Um, and as we mentioned you know these particles can can really affect biology. So what are the limits of life in space as we know it today? So we have done during the Apollo years, we humans have done 12 and a half days on lunar round-trip missions um, and that was the deep space environment. Now, we've done longer durations in space, but that's been in low Earth orbit. So on the International Space Station, crew have stayed for, you know, much longer periods of time, you know, over a year, a year and a half, and so on. And so with this in mind, I have an example uh, of a couple of papers. Some work was done um, and, and published in 2008 that showed that astronauts that had spent six months in low Earth orbit had increased statistically measurable increase in chromosomal abnormalities in their white blood cells, in the lymphocytes. So these were measured in the lymphocyte and there was a statistically significant increase in chromosomal abnormalities. This increase was 1.5 to 1.8 times more than pre-flight levels. And a large fraction of this damage Uh, is thought to come from the galactic cosmic radiation, which, as I mentioned, are these heavy ions. So in this paper from Schramm et al., what they did is to do an estimation of, if you estimate, you know, looking at this lymphocyte damage, if you estimate over time, and remember that a Mars mission will be something like over a two to three-year period, when you estimate over time what the, the translocations per... Uh, cell in this, you know, in the in the white blood cell system. If you if you look at that again, uh, the, this in the filled in the the dark circles is the damage you would expect to see on the ISS. This, on the other hand, is the estimated damage that you would see in deep space. And so you can see that there is uh, definitely expected to be much increased uh, damage to the biological system. Uh, due to these, um, you know, increased exposure to this galactic cosmic radiation.
2: Although the ISS, the International Space Station, orbits the Earth at an altitude of 400 kilometres, well within the protective magnetosphere, it is still a good testbed for testing radiation exposure. The unit of radiation exposure is the sievert. One sievert is placing one joule per kilogram into a biological organ. Annie Rodha Dixit from the Kennedy Space Center explains.
5: So the bottom line is that gamma radiation or any type of radiation does create damages to the biology. I think there are two different ways. Either it's a direct damage or an indirect damage. Direct damage being breaks in the DNA strand, single or double stranded breaks, or you can look at the indirect damage as free radicals coming from reactive oxygen species, which can create further damage to the DNA. So all in all, we know much quite a bit about the radiation damage to the biology, but we really don't understand or there is not much of uh, knowledge as to how it affects biology, especially in case of plants at least. So how does the radiations look like on the lunar surface? So as Oscar mentioned, um, the, China, the China's China E lander that landed in 2019 on lunar surface, uh, it did some measurements. And some of the key aspects of this slide is, it's, it's talking about 1.369 millisieverts per day on the surface of the moon. And when they compared those numbers to what you would expect in ISS, um, it's almost less than half of that you would ex- expect on ISS and 0.5% two, three are coming from the galactic cosmic radiation on ISS. The comparison they're doing between the radiation levels on the lunar surface compared to the ISS, there's a factor of 2.6 higher uh, on the lunar surface. And uh, I'm explaining what the sievert numbers looks like. So it's basically, instead of looking at the grays, it's looking at the biological effect of radiation dose absorbed. So how does those numbers look like comparatively? So, and it's looking at um, the numbers are in millisieverts, as to what's the biological damage of the absorption of that that amount of radiation. And I'm highlighting especially the six months on ISS average, which is 75 millisieverts, which comes to about 0.4166 millisieverts per day. So compare that number to on the lunar surface is almost two and a half or 2.6 times greater than what you would expect on uh, ISS.
2: Canadian Ian Mann of the University of Alberta is working on an instrument to monitor space radiation. He gives it the name SWEPT, S-W-E-P-T, for Sweeping Energetic Particle Telescope. In February of 2022, he gave this description of SWEPT. Oh, and, and by the way, SEP means Solar Energetic Particles, and IMF is the Interplanetary Magnetic Field.
0: So for those who don't know me, I'm Ian Mann from the University of Alberta in Canada. And I'm going to present to you a brief overview of a Canadian radiation detector called SWEPT. It's the Sweeping Energetic Particle Telescope. And ostensibly this provides a steerable radiation telescope for the energy and directional analysis of radiation that might be coming into the lunar environment. And this is a work led out of the University of Alberta. So the development of this Canadian radiation instrument follows the kind of philosophy in the space exploration roadmap, the global space exploration roadmap, and as far as the radiation detection is concerned, we're envisaging the development of modular technology that takes us from space station in low Earth orbit outside the protective magnetic shield of the Earth's magnetosphere out to the moon, and, of course, the revisit to moon with the Artemis program and related activities, including the Lunar Gateway, and then hopefully on to further exploration to perhaps the red planet and other destinations in the solar system. And our goal is ostensibly to have the capacity to measure energetic particles, but our focus is on solar energetic particles uh, and look at the energy and directional spectrum of that so, a little bit of uh, heritage. So, this instrument's been in development at the University of Alberta since about 2005 for a, an orbital mission around the Earth called Orbitals. We looked at some concepts to fly on the station, and then actually with the uh, focus on returning to the moon, Canadian Space Agency have supported a number of contracts uh, very recently, looking at scientific opportunities and honing the design of this instrument for applications either in lunar orbit or also actually on the lunar surface as part of a lander. Um, Most recently, we have funding for a a new microsat mission in Earth orbit called Radicals, which will fall a version of this instrument. But for the purposes of this talk, I'm focusing on a current Canadian Space Agency contract that we have to build and test a prototype of this instrument with application for the Lunar Gateway. And the goal, essentially, of the instrument development is to prove the the technology and to take the prototype instrument and validate its performance, including in accelerator beamlines, for example, at Triumph in Vancouver. The philosophy of this instrument is to actively steer the instrument to give us a measurement of the directionality of the radiation and how it evolves through the course of an SEP event. Uh, and that's very important because how that radiation is processed then will impact uh, anything in the vicinity, electronics, and of course, most importantly, any astronauts inside the gateway or indeed on the lunar surface. And the processing of that radiation, especially the SEP protons, is important because the secondary production, for example, neutrons inside the gateway will be of significant uh, biological impact for astronauts that are in, in inboard at the time. Now, of course, a piece of history, probably everybody knows here the, the risks are much larger outside the magnetic shield, and the Apollo program was rather fortunate in avoiding large solar energetic particle events on the lunar surface. But of course, as we return to the moon, we can't rely on um, being quite so lucky, and we need to have the capability to characterize the radiation and also to design mitigation strategies where information about incoming radiation storms and SEP storms would be available for the astronauts to take protective action, maybe to enter a shielded space or other the mitigation strategies looking forward to the challenges of course the number of these SEP events peaks at solar max and so there's an unfortunate perhaps coincidence between the start of the Artemis program and the time of the next solar maximum typically SEP events occur around every couple of weeks at solar maximum but they vary in size from relatively small short-lasting events to more sporadic and intense Events where the flux is uh, orders of magnitude larger than the more continuous background galactic cosmic ray flux. And there's some interesting aspects around the directionality um, that's not well studied. So, often the events start if they're magnetically connected to the sun are strongly beamed along the direction of the IMF, uh, and then they isotropize as a result of interactions with shocks or other structures in the heliosphere or, you know, perhaps to, to um, the generation mechanism itself. But the isotropization time is um, quite different, can be uh, short or long depending on the intensity of the event. And so the radiation environment that's experienced by astronauts, any infrastructure, and even on the surface of the moon, it's going to be influenced by how that directionality involves uh, and anything that's in the way. And we think this is an important aspect for radiation protection, um, as well as, in fact, for studying the physical processes which accelerate the SEPs in the first place. So our goal, as I mentioned, is to have a sweeping technology to mount a directional telescopic instrument on a two-dimensional gimbal that will have access to uh, all directions in four pi steradians of space, and to use that to sweep and characterize um, the radiation, both in a slow sweep during ambient conditions, and then to trigger and to to accelerate that sweep more rapidly once an SEP event begins. Now, I'm focusing here mostly on the uh, protons with this instrument to also measure electrons. These uh, lower-mass electrons are believed to be a potential precursor, a warning, in fact, of the um, imminent arrival of subsequent SEP protons and alphas uh, a little bit later. So, certainly, these SEP events are a concern in terms of the astronaut dose that we need to um, pay attention to. Basically, the goal when here is to study space radiation environment on the gateway, including this angular element. It's complementary to the Ursa and Hermes packages that were already described. And significantly, the steerable capability also allows us to avoid perhaps some of the protrusions and obstructions that might impede measurements, for example, on merit as part of the Hermes payload, clear applications to space health, and as I've mentioned, um, to test some of these uh, algorithms I guess, finally, I just mentioned the complementarity of other measurements and scattering from the regolith. So, understanding the backscatter of particles from the regolith might give us a mechanism to understand some of the characteristics, perhaps even the water distribution that exists within the lunar lunar regolith. Uh, Based on these crater observations, it suggests that might be something of value. And you could combine these measurements in orbit with uh, others uh, on the surface, or to use the periapsis passes to start to look at some of these characteristics, at least over over the pole. Thank you for your attention.
2: Over the past decades, there have been many proposals on how astronauts might be shielded from cosmic rays and solar flares. Most of them involve heavy masses, which in turn require large and expensive rockets. Magnetic shields are popular in science fiction stories, but are they practical? Gail Isles is a physicist who thinks an active radiation shield should be practical. A senior lecturer at Melbourne's RMIT University, she is on the cusp of putting her ideas to the test. In February of 2022, she described the experiment that is called radical S. Oh, by the way, GNSS stands for the Global Navigation Satellite System.
6: So I'll start by informing you about the opportunity. The Swedish Space Corporation launched from Karuna up in the Arctic Circle of the Northern Hemisphere, and we have an experiment manifest on suborbital Express 3, or MESA 15, which uh, has faced a couple of delays, but uh, it's now scheduled to fly in November this year. The MESA is one of the kind of middle-sized rockets that Sweden offers, and it'll be going to an altitude of about 250 kilometers. The flight is reasonably short. It's around about 12 to 15 minutes long. And with just six to seven minutes of microgravity, which we won't actually be making use of with this flight. In fact, the key thing for us is the radiation environment. Up there in the the landmass, very close to the magnetic pole in the north, we're going to be able to expose our payload to a very high radiation dose at a reasonably low altitude and we're in Australia so we don't have the same landmass next to the uh, or an easily accessible magnetic pole in the south. Now we've been developing the payload for quite some time and we're just entering the, the kind of exciting stage between development and testing and gearing up for the launch but I'll give a more detailed timeline a bit later in the talk. So uh, the key thing here is that we are developing an active radiation shield. So rather than just using passive materials that represent a simple barrier between radiation and crew or electronics, we're making use magnetic interactions to add extra protection In terms of testing, we do have some space radiation analogs in Australia. We've got a neutron source, some protons and heavy ions, but they're not the same energies as would be encountered in space. The active radiation shielding principle operates off the Lorentz equation. So a particle will experience a force when it encounters an electric and magnetic field and will Uh, depending on the velocity that the particle has, it will deflect by a certain amount. Now, NASA and ESA have, of course, invested huge amounts of money in researching active shields, but most designs are huge toroids, usually cryogenically cooled, and the goal has been to protect large volumes of the spacecraft permanently. And our project adopted a completely different approach from from the get-go on the assumption that launching these huge massive things that require a lot of operating materials and costs are not fit for launch and not fit for long-term operation. So the constraints that we applied to our projects were, uh, first of all, it has to be lightweight to reduce the launch costs. It can only operate off existing spacecraft power. So if we assume ISS is operating off 160 volts, then that's all we have. And magnetic fields of the three types of active shielding are probably the easiest to generate and easiest to control. With the opportunity that we have with Sweden, we also have to ensure that the payload fits within a a 1U uh, volume, so we have to scale it down massively, and the shield w- must be able to operate autonomously. So these are quite the number of constraints for the for the payload and for such a solution. The one you design uh, consists of an aluminium bus with a, a minimal frame that simply can handle the g's at launch about 20 to 25 g's on the on the rocket it consists of a shield with a novel design an instrument suite it takes its power from the rocket so it doesn't need its own power supply and simply has a 21 pin plug to connect to the rocket so the key point about the shield here is that Instead of having the toroid generate the magnetic field through the center of the spacecraft, which would be damaging to the humans on board, this design puts the magnetic coils and the magnetic field in the walls, leaving a void volume inside the spacecraft so the crew are unaffected by the magnetic field. The active components comprise of polyethylene slabs with copper coils wound around. For this particular prototype, we have eight segments. So eight uh, slabs of polyethylene and uh, each slab has approximately 92 windings. Simulations of the the most simple shield with just the 90 windings and uh, a five amp current uh, generate uh, some Modest field strength, so six millitesla in the in the uh, modelled in the centre and two millitesla at the ends. In terms of contamination to, to other payloads that are nearby, the B field strength reduces to zero at five centimeters from the shield when it's at five amps and generating this amount of uh, magnetic field. The instrument suite is very simple and very basic. We don't have any room. So we have uh, a Geiger counter, a magnetometer, and a GNSS. The Geiger counter has two count modes, fast and normal. Uh, It can't make any distinction between particles, although it will only be measuring charged particles. So we're hoping, you know, the majority of the signal is going to be protons. The electrons probably won't contribute too much. So we're going to be able to make a reasonable assumption that the the counts are protons and we should be seeing a reduction in that count when the shield is on. In terms of our timeline, the next exciting thing is taking the payload to ANSTO, the uh, Centre for Accelerator Science that has a 20 mega electron volt proton beam. This will be the first kind of real test of the shield. And then in August, we'll be shipping the payload to Sweden.
2: No matter whether they are on the Moon or Mars, or on Route to or from, astronauts will need to be alerted to space weather events. To that objective, NASA has established a Space Weather Analysis Office at the Goddard Space Flight Centre. First, uh, some of those pesky acronyms. ISS is the International Space Station. JWST is the James Webb Space Telescope. Ingenuity is a helicopter flown on Mars and MAVEN is a spacecraft orbiting Mars with the task of measuring the effect of the solar wind on the Martian atmosphere. SRAG is the Space Radiation Analysis Group SEP is a solar energetic particle, and CME is a coronal mass ejection, that is, a burst of protons and electrons from the sun. This talk was given in February of 2022 by Yarosida. Collado Vega, the Director of the Moon-to-Mars Space Weather Office at the Goddard Space Flight Center.
1: So thank you again for inviting me to give this presentation. I'm Jari Collado Vega. I'm the Director of the Moon-to-Mars Space Weather Analysis Office and this is an office that was established in 2020 during the pandemic and is in close collaboration with the Community Coordinating Modeling Center and the Space Radiation Analysis Group track from Johnson Space Center. A little bit on the background, as NASA plans missions beyond the lower Earth orbit, the need of improvements for space weather, modeling capabilities, communications with radiation risk to the crew, and also space weather real-time analysis have been deemed essential. The NASA Space Radiation Analysis Group track serves as the main space weather monitoring score for all US crew members aboard the ISS. They operate the console that include the imagery, and also the analysis of the energetic particle radiation. Given the new challenges with these deep space missions, additional support is needed in analyzing the space weather environment, especially beyond the Sun-Earth line. That's where the Moon to Mars Space Weather Analysis Office comes in. In the statement, we have that we were established to support NASA's Shrag Group, with human space exploration activities, by providing additional expert analysis on the space variation environment, and I want to pinpoint the additional part because NOAA SWPC will remain and still remains the primary forecasting office for SHRAG. This is not going to change. We're not here to step in the toes of anybody. We're actually providing a secondary expert support by analyzing state-of-the-art space weather models that are actually tailored to SHRAG needs. We're going to help track, make informed decisions of SCP event likelihood, intensity, and duration. With for those human exploration missions to the Moon and then in the future to Mars, we have we encompass both the Moon and Mars missions. This is a unique capability that only an in-house NASA office can offer, and we're actually currently collaborating really close with the Maven team to validate the space weather events that are actually sent. Uh, towards bars. Now in terms of activities and change of events, we monitor right now, currently models and activity daily. This includes holidays and weekends. This is gonna change when we go to Artemis launches and actually mission critical time, we're gonna be 24 seven. Officially we do not um, support the ISS EVAs, but we're actually doing it to practice for those future EVAs that we're actually gonna be officially supporting. We also send a weekly Space Weather reports every Wednesday. And these are the events that we actually send the notifications for, the flares, and actually the instrumentation and the missions that we use, the on GOES. For CME, depending on the speed, we use the different chronographs available, SOHO, STARE AHEAD. Unfortunately, we don't have STARE behind anymore. So I did energy particle events, like SOHO, GOES, and we also uh, analyze in different locations, like STARE AHEAD. CME arrivals also at L1 and also at other locations. Geomagnetic storm, we use the KP index as a global index for, for calculating the geomagnetic storm. Radiation belt, electron flux enhancements that GOES. And we also try to understand and analyze magnetopause crossings to geosynchronous orbit using the SWMF model from the University of Michigan. The scoreboard is already being used by Schrag and n m for ISS support. It will be used for Artemis. This is a public available tool that everybody can see. It actually has all the models there that can actually produce a forecast in real time of the events. And it's actually in this one compared to the real time observational data from GOES. Now, what does it mean doing this in real time? Well, my team analyzes the space weather environment in real time, we do the measurements of, for example, CMEs, submit the simulations, we then ingest the donkey, the database with the measurements of the CME, with the simulations and everything. And this actually helps populate then the SCP scoreboard. We have models that actually are initiated by the data, the observational data, but we also have models that are initiated by the CME measurements. And we also have models that are initiated by the uh, simulations that are around with those CME measurements. After that, then we take those measurements and we actually help in the validation. Now, something that is really important about the team that we do is that we do support NASA robotic missions with anomaly analysis, and this is really, really important. They're requested several times a month, and I can say, like, this month has been a little crazy because of the solar activity. An assessment is prepared and sent to the evaluation board where critical decisions are made. We have supported many missions. We also work closely with the uh, Mission Resilience and Protection Program from Goddard. They have us as part of the regular procedures when they have an anomaly. You know, we're part of the checklist of things that they need to check. Now, something really unique about the team that I wanna highlight is like, we have that capability beyond the sun earth line. I think this is the only team that actually does that in terms of we analyze the sun 360 degrees. And this is an example of Ingenuity support. Uh, Two days before Ingenuity's first flight, a solar flare was observed, which had a CME associated with which was predicted to arrive the day of the second flight. When this all happened, you know, the JPL team contacted us. Schrag also was involved in the situation. And then also we involved the solar orbiter because actually the CME was going to arrive at solar orbiter first. Because of the predictions that we had, we could actually manage to understand and analyze how the environment was gonna change due to this CME. And we could actually send that information to the JPL team and say, you know, we think nothing's gonna happen, you should be okay. And then the decision with them, they made the decision that everything was gonna stay normal, nothing was gonna change. So this is something really important that we actually have that we actually can support NASA robotic missions across the whole solar system. Another thing that we had, we actually supported was as the launch of the James Webb. We're very proud of it. It was something really, really intense, but we actually had a lot of fun with it. We actually supported this analyzing the space weather environment that had to do with activities like solar flares, coronal mass ejections, solar energetic particle events, electron fluxes in the outer radiation belt, and geomagnetic storms and substorms. On the week of the launch, we provided every day... Uh, tag ups and also written reports to the James Webb team and at this time you know we work usually eight hours a day we were working 12 to 18 hours on the day of and the eve of the launch which is Christmas Eve and Christmas Day we participated in the call that they have uh, live that we were actually analyzing the space weather 24 7 at this point end to end We monitored the availability of the CCMC model due to the, that that could actually support the launch. And also we were contacted all the time with CCMC and also the stereo team. So we're very grateful of them supporting us in this activity too. And, you know, we have been still supporting the the mission uh, with post-launch operations and anomalies, uh, just to make sure that everything's okay. So in summary, uh, given the new challenges, uh, additional support is needed. This whole has to do with the deep space exploration missions and in end will address it by analyzing state-of-the-art space model models tailored to SHRAG needs. And it's an additional support that's definitely needed. And we will continue to support NASA robotic missions with the space weather assessments and anomaly analysis.